Amen. Thank you, Steve and Elaine. Choir, let's give them a hand. It's amazing to uh, experience such worship and really appreciate. Ross, thank you for the psalms. That was incredible. It's always good to sing God's word. If you will, let's pray before we jump into God's word. Father, we thank you that you're good and you are glorious and we want to make your praise glorious. Father, we know that you're worthy and we're not. And we know that you're good and we're often not. And we come to you asking for your grace, your forgiveness, and your mercy. Father, as we look into your word, we know that your word is challenging. And we often don't live up to the standards of your word. So please help us to follow you more today than we did yesterday and more tomorrow than we did today. We pray the Holy Spirit would be present and your word would come alive. And that we would leave transformed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have your Bibles. are going to be in Luke chapter 9. And there is a listening guide inside of your bulletin. While you're turning there, curiosity, how many golf fans do we have in the place? All right. We got more in this service than we did in the first service. Well, for the golf fans or for the ones who are bandwagon golf fans, I would consider myself bandwagon. I occasionally tune in. You guys saw that Tiger Woods made an epic comeback. Um, this was after five years of personal struggles. Most of you know his story, public scandal, uh, DUI, rehab, everything going on, four back surgeries. And the whole world had said he's never going to w- come back and win. Everyone had written him off. But a week ago today, he won his 80th PGA Tour. And it was interesting, as I was hearing him being interviewed, one of the comments that stuck, stood out to me is he said, one thing I am excited about is my kids will be able to see their old man still can swing the golf club. And he was excited his kids would see now that they're older and can realize he, he won and they were old enough to remember it. And that was, that was an epic comeback. And I, I was rooting him on, as many of some of you, we love to see people come back. We love to see people who are down and out give a set, get a second chance at life or their profession. And as I, I, was, I was thinking about it this week, you know, we often want significance. And for Tiger, significance was showing the world he could come back. When you've written me off, I, I'm going to come back. And this picture right here shows thousands of people chanting his name as he was getting ready to sink the last putt to win his 80th PGA. But 20 years from now, I would dare to say, unless you're an avid golf fan, most of us will not remember this day. Most of us will be moved on to something else that has captured our attention. So it brings the question, how can you live a life of significance? The world sees significance as this, someone that, you know, wins a PGA Tour, or someone that wins a championship, or someone that's successful in their career. But in 20 years, will it really matter? Today, we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, and how Jesus paints a very different picture than the world. He paints a picture that if you want to win, you must first lose. If you want to live, you must first die. So today we're going to talk about the significance and what that looks like, the secret to a significant life. So we're going to look in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 23. Then Jesus said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what is it to a man if he gains the whole world and he himself is destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. And God bless his word. So today I want to give you five actions of the secret to a significant life. These actions are laid out right here in the text. And if we want to live a life of significance, uh, we have to follow these actions that Jesus lays out. Number one, a significant life desires to follow Jesus above all else. A significant life desires to follow Jesus above all else. When I ask you what's your greatest dream or desire, I would probably get many different answers. Growing up, some of you who know me a little bit better than others know that I aspire to be the next Michael Jordan. I played basketball all the time. I still remember as a 12-year-old around probably the 6th, 7th, 8th grade, those, those time frame, I, asked, I wanted to get a raincoat. I was like, Mom, can I get a raincoat? Because I want to play in the rain. Because if you want to be the best, you've got to beat the best. And if I'm going to beat the best, I've got to become the best. I would play. And I still remember, you know, thinking I'm going to be the next MJ. The problem was when I, when I got into the 8th grade, ninth grade, I realized I had three problems. Number one, I wasn't tall enough. Number two, I wasn't good enough. And number three, I couldn't jump high enough. So those were going against me. And I remember uh, challenging the captain of the basketball team and getting beat really badly. And after, subsequently after that point, God gave me another alternative. Instead of trying to pursue this pipe dream that's never going to go anywhere, I'm calling you into the ministry. So at the age of 15, I remember surrendering the call to ministry. Because here's the truth. You know, it's, it's humbling to admit this, but I never would have made it past high school into college. I wasn't that good. And if I would have pursued my own dream, it would have ended up in a crash and burn with nothing to show for and the dream that God gave me at 15, which I carry on to this day, and I didn't say it in these terms when I was 15, but here's how I'll express it now. The dream that God's given me is to change as many lives as I can in my lifetime. That's my dream. And I'm pursuing it, and that's what I'm pursuing the call. And the thing about God's dream is it's much bigger and more amazing than your personal dream. And we're going to talk about that today. So notice Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, there's a lot of things we desire in life. The first service, we, we, we did a survey and said, what are some things that people desire? And people said money and success and you know, things like that. And those were in the top ten. And uh, Huffington, Huffington Post, um, they, they did this survey in Huffington. And they said, you know, what are the, the top desires of Americans? And I'm going to list the top ten. They said happiness. How many have ever heard people say, I just want to be happy? That was one of the number ones. Money. Freedom, peace, joy, balance, fulfillment, confidence, stability, and passion. And these in and of themselves aren't necessarily wrong. It's just when you're pursuing that above pursuing the things of God. And the thing is, folks, if you make any desire more important than your desire to follow Jesus, it's just a cheap invitation. Because if you get success, what do you have? There's nothing at the end of it. You just want more success. When you ask a millionaire, what, what do you wish you could do uh, if you could have any dream? They'll say, I wish I could make another million. And there's nothing wrong with success or having things. The problem is, is when we pursue that as our ultimate goal instead of pursuing Christ. 
So Jesus gives this invitation. I know how I love how he asked it. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, that doesn't sound like a good commercial, does it? If you're willing, if you want to come, you know, he didn't push himself on anyone. He said, if you want to, you have a choice and you could accept it or reject it. And the same thing when we present the gospel to people today, we don't push people to accept Christ. We strongly encourage them to, but they have the option. God will never force himself upon anyone as Jesus did not do so here. So it brings up a question for the average American. And the average American, he or she would say, well, how can we pursue God who's invisible? I mean, think about it. God's invisible. You know, having money, that's tangible. Having a car, that's tangible. Having happiness, you can experience it. How can you pursue Jesus Christ if he's in heaven and he's invisible? Well, a few things to write down. Number one, you have to realize that the eternal is much more rewarding than the temporary. The internal is much more important and rewarding than the temporary. You guys know the scripture Paul says in Philippians 3, 7 through 8. He says, those things that were gained to me, these I've counted as loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I've count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. You have the King James that says dung. And you guys know we raise dogs, so I know exactly what this word is referring to. And he's saying, listen, all my accolades, all my achievements, you know, as one, one pastor said, you can have so many degrees behind your name, people call you thermometer as your nickname. Uh, you can have all the degrees, all the success, all that's great. But when you compare those things to Jesus, it's rubbish. It's nothing. And Paul was educated. He was elite. Uh, he, he was a world changer, and he said, listen, everything I've done in the human side, all my achievements, all my titles, all my pedigrees, it's nothing. So Jesus says, if you desire to come after me, you have to desire me more than anything else. Another thing we've got to realize, still under point one, is recognize that God's kingdom has to come before mine. A lot of times we pursue building our own kingdom, but Jesus said we're to seek first who? His kingdom and his righteousness. Whenever I make God's business my business, he makes my business his business. In other words, when I put him first, he takes care of all the rest. Just got to trust in him. And we got to realize that Jesus is the only one who can satisfy our thirsty soul. Uh, my family and I, with, with four kids, we love eating Chick-fil-A because it's good food. We'll get it to go. We usually eat it in the van. So if you go through my van, there's usually Chick-fil-A stuff lying under the seats or whatever. So... One thing about Chick-fil-A, if you ever noticed, is we are thirsty after we eat. Anybody ever notice that with Chick-fil-A? Why do you get thirsty after eating Chick-fil-A? Salt, right. And the thing about it is, like, I mean, we're like guzzling gallons of water because the salt just makes us so thirsty, the salty waffle fries and the salt and the batter on the breading. And I was reminded recently that Jesus said that we are the salt of the earth. And I know salt preserves, and that's probably the main intended meaning, but also salt makes you thirsty. And how many of us are thirsty for God? How many of us make others being salt in the world thirsty for God? I love Psalm 42.1. This is in your listening guide. It says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. When's the last time you craved God more than food? When's the last time you were hungry and you had such an insatiable appetite for God. It was just like a natural craving. God wants us to go back to that. He wants us to hunger for him. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. 
if you want to live a significant life, if you want to answer the call to discipleship, you have to desire. You have to desire me. Desire to come after me. Number two, the second point to living a significant life, being a disciple of Jesus. Number two, a significant life dies to self to follow the Savior. Notice in verse 23, said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him do what? Deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So has anybody in here ever taken a selfie before? Raise your hand. I know we probably have, you know, selfie is something, you know, they even have selfie sticks. I remember first I was in South Florida. My wife's from South Florida. And I remember seeing at a restaurant someone that had this stick. And I'm like, what is that? And it's a selfie stick. You know, you can take a picture of yourself and, you know, all this. And selfies are fun. The challenge is, how do you deny self in a selfie world? You know, we live in such a selfie world, it's all about you. And you ever, you ever experience this next picture? It's called a photobomb. Anybody ever experienced that? You're sitting there with your family picture and someone jumps into the picture. Anybody ever had this happen? Photobomb. And it's like, why would someone do this? Well, they want to be in every picture, even if it's not their own. Uh, for those of you who aren't on the social media, I'll give you another example that may, may be more apropos to you. Have you ever celebrated an anniversary, say it's your 40th or 50th anniversary, and you're at a restaurant, there's someone at the table next to you, and they one-up you and say, well, that's good, you've been married 40 years, I've been married 50 years. And you're like, can't you just enter into my moment and celebrate? We live in such a selfie society that Jesus' words today are even more radical today than they were when, when the scripture was written. If you want to follow me, you've got to deny self even in the selfie world. You've got to take up your cross and you've got to follow me. So here's the thing about the cross. For us, the cross is a symbol of Jesus. You know, we've got a cross back here and it's a symbol of Jesus dying on the cross. And that day and time, when you saw the cross, it usually was someone on a cross. It was the Roman vehicle for execution. So in today's terminology, when Jesus said, take up your cross, it'd be like saying, take up your electric chair, taking up your symbol of, of dying. And see, this is a paradox in Jesus' teaching that we have to address. He said, if you want to live, you have to first die. If you want to win, you have to first lose as concerning the world. And we're like, how is that possible? Well, first of all, we've got to talk about how the world does it. This is how not to live a significant life. And this is on your listening guide. Here's how you don't live a significant life. Here's how the world does it. Number one, put yourself first. If you want to have an insignificant life, put yourself first. Care about yourself more than others. Isn't that the way the average person does? And we have sayings, if you don't take care of yourself, who will? Think about yourself all the time. That's a way to get depressed really fast. Try to build your kingdom. Make going to church a means to an end, like a hobby. I go to churches to socialize, to get job connections, whatever it may be. Here's how not to live a significant life. Now, to flip the equation, here's how we do it. We've got to die to that which is causing us to die. When Jesus said, deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, what is he saying? Is he saying it's an aesthetic life, like you have to be a monk in a monastery? I don't think he's talking about that. Um, I've actually heard stories of people who have taken this scripture and said things like, you know, I don't drink sweet tea because I think that's too pleasurable. I drink unsweet tea. And I'm like, really? 
and he, that, that's taken up my cross, right? And we use the term taking up your cross to re- represent any bad thing in your life. But I want you to think about the cross. The cross was the sim- symbol of Jesus dying for the world so the world could live. Your cross is symbolic of you dying to that which keeps you from God's best and that which helps others be brought to Christ. So take up your cross means what are the things that are keeping you from God's best and what are the things that are keeping you from serving others? Let that be your cross. You know, a lot of times we use take up your cross for everything. If I've got a migraine headache, well, that's just my cross to bear. Well, it may mean you just have a migraine headache. I think the cross means much more than physical. It, it could involve that. Paul would call that a thorn in the flesh. But I think the cross is that which causes you to die spiritually, physically, whatever it may be. We know in Christ we're living spiritually. But how many of us know that there are certain things that can hinder us spiritually? We're not going to die again. We've already, we've already died to self. But there are certain things that hinder us spiritually. Physically, what are some things that are harming us physically? Habits, hang-ups, addictions. So there's certain things that keep us from God's best. But ultimately, I think when Jesus says to take up your cross, he's saying those things that keep you from me, you've got to die to. So, folks, there may be some things we have to sacrifice to follow Christ. Sometimes we have to sacrifice personal interests. Sometimes we have to sacrifice time or money or whatever. So the imagery of taking up your cross, it simply means that there are certain things that are holding me back from God. And I have to die to those things. And there are certain things that are keeping me from ministering to others. And I have to die to those things. So take up your cross and follow him. And we have to be willing to sacrifice the temporary for the sake of the eternal. Folks, my heart is this. I'm willing to bet the family farm if one more person can come to Christ. So that means I have to sacrifice some time, some money. I have to sacrifice small dreams. I have to sacrifice personal comfort sometimes. And if I'm willing to give up the temporary for the sake of the eternal, that's part of living a significant life. Amen. So... Jesus says, if anyone is willing to follow me, what does he say? He must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We have a picture coming up on the screen of William Borden. Some of you may not have heard of him, but how many of you have ever heard of Borden's Dairy, Borden's Ice Cream? In 1905, William Borden graduated from a school in Chicago. And he was part of this multi-million dollar family. He was going to inherit the Bordenisteria estate. And all of a sudden, he decides that after graduation, he was going to decide what he wanted to do with his life. So his family sent him on this epic graduation trip. He traveled through Asia, through the Middle East, through Europe. And, I mean, you can imagine ultimate graduation trips. And all, all the high school students were like, yes, please. So he traveled the world, and instead of just seeing the sights and sounds, I want to read you what he wrote back to his parents. This is a high school graduate, 18 years old approximately. He says, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field because Borden was moved by people hurting around the world. Everywhere he went, through Asia, Europe, Middle East, he saw hurting people. And as a high school graduate, he said, I'm going to give my life to serve these people. So he came back to America. He went to Yale University. And this blew me away. As a freshman at Yale University studying, he started a prayer Bible study, a prayer group. And all of a sudden, by the end of his freshman year, 150 freshmen were going to his weekly meetings. 
Can you believe that? 150, just right, right out of high school. By the time he reached his senior year, there were 1,300 students at Yale. 1,000 out of the 1,300 were in Bible study prayer groups. Can you imagine that? Due to his influence. That's like, and that we joked in the first service, I said, boy, has Yale changed since then. <laughs> so all of a sudden, instead of taking over his family business upon graduation, he told his family, I'm going to go to seminary. And he was wanting to study to reach the Muslim people. It was the Kansu people in China. So he went and he flew to Egypt because he was going to learn Arabic to try to minister to the Muslim people. And as he was in Egypt, he contacted spinal meningitis. And at the age of 25, William Borden died. And I want to read to you. This is in the back of his, back of his Bible. And this is on the screen. At the beginning, when he went around the world as a high school student, he said, no reserves. Whenever he decided to go to seminary and move forward with his life, he said, no, no retreats. And right before he died, he penned this in his Bible. At the very back, he said, no regrets. Folks, from a worldly perspective, the world would say, what a fool. You gave up a multi-million dollar empire to die at 25. But William Borden's story has inspired countless missionaries who have heard his story and because of it gave their lives to the mission field. And from heaven's account, he lived a significant life even though he died at 25. Amen? So when Jesus said, if you save your life, you'll lose it, you'll lose it, you'll save it, I want you guys to think of William Borden. No reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. All right, number three, a significant life. Dares to live life for a bigger purpose. Dares to live life for a bigger purpose. Notice in verse 25 it says, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he himself is destroyed or lost? So Jesus tells us that the things that you give up for eternity, it's worth it all. You know, some of you have sacrificed. I know many in this church, you know, we're celebrating 60 years, by the way, of this church being in existence. There's many stories of people that gave up college funds for, this, for, their, for their son or daughter. Many people that sacrificed. And we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. And when they look back, they don't regret. Because we're here today because of the sacrifices of those who have gone on before. Amen? So we only have one life to live. And only what is done for Christ will last. So how do you lose your life for Jesus' sake? Just a few application points maybe to write down. One thing is we, we give up living for just personal happiness. If your goal is just to be happy in life, I would say that's a very shallow goal because it's, it's about you. But if your goal is about changing the world one person at a time, it's no longer about you. It's about others. We've got to surrender selfishness at the cross of Christ. So when Jesus said, take up your cross, as I mentioned, it, it could include physical ailments. But I think on a greater scale, it's talking about dying to your selfish nature. Dying to yourself so that you can live for a greater, greater purpose. When you think about it, your story is small and finite. God's story is big and infinite. Your story is sometimes depressing. If you don't believe me, ask your friend. They'll tell you. Your story is sometimes depressing. God's story is always thrilling. Yes, there's challenges. Yes, there's crisis. There's, there's, there's issues. But in the end, God always brings about resurrection. Amen. Whenever your story intersects God's story, your story becomes part of his story. Therefore, your story becomes part of history. 
And I want to encourage you, when it, when it talks about dying to yourself, it's saying trade your small dreams, trade your selfish ambitions and desires, and go after something bigger. Go after something that's going to make an impact for eternity. So maybe today or in the future you'll have an encounter like I did when I was 15. I traded my small dreams for the dream of God. Amen. Number four, a significant life delights in Jesus more than the applause of man. Verse 26 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. So here's the thing. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, meaning that you're not going to follow me, you're not going to be my disciple, when I come back, if you're not a believer, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be great shame before God. A lot can be said about the culture, whatever causes shame. You ever notice that in 2018, the, the society we live in today, 20 years ago, the things that we used to see on TV caused shame, and now it's not a big deal at all to the average person? It's like, what causes shame is change now have you ever noticed as christians we get looked down upon by popular society the world at large because of our christian values some of the things that we value the world looks as shameful I'll give you a few examples marriage the christian's view on marriage the world looks at that and says that's shameful the view on the unborn we we have pro-right you know we believe that the children's life matters the world looks at the Christian values and says, that's, that's horrible. Um, when we talk about sexuality, things like that, the world looks at that and says, how shameful. But you know what? I would rather agree with what God says than what the world says. Because the world is constantly changing, but God never changes. And here's the thing about it is, we love everybody. But you know what? If you love somebody, you're willing to tell them the truth. If someone had a terminal disease and they didn't realize it and you were their doctor, wouldn't you want to be told that you have an issue? And the same way, we as humans, we're all in this sinking ship apart from God's grace. And we're just saying, listen, we've been forgiven. We're no better than you are. But we want you to be forgiven as well. Amen. Paul said it like this in Romans 1.16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what is he saying? I'm not ashamed of the things of God. Because those are the things that truly matter. Those are the things that are going to really make a difference. Fast forward, and this is in your listening guide, 2 Timothy 1.12. This is at the end of Paul's life. I want to read to you what he said. For this reason I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I committed unto him against that day. What did he say? I've lived my life for Christ from the moment of conversion, moment of salvation, and I'm not ashamed. I want us to be able to get to the end of our lives and say, I lived a life of significance. The reason why, I didn't live for self, but I lived for the Savior. It was about God and others, not about me. Amen. So I'm going to ask a question to all the married ladies or the ladies who were married. You can look back. How would you feel it if your husband was ashamed of you? How would you like it? And maybe he's not on Facebook, but if he had a Facebook account and on his profile he said single. And you notice he didn't wear his wedding band in public. And whenever he went to the company work parties, you weren't invited. How would that make you feel? 
I felt like some of the ladies in the first service about to throw some stuff at me because it's, it's personal. In the same way, you think about Jesus who gave himself for us, died on the cross for us, shed his blood for us, pursued us, and all of a sudden he looks at us and we're ashamed of him. How does that, how does that translate to God? When Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. So let us never be ashamed of the things that God wants us to value. Amen. Number five, a significant life dreams with hope about the future. Dreams with hope about the future. Verse 27, this is a verse that's going to point to the transfiguration. He says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus gives a promise, you know, among the twelve there, there's going to be some of you who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And it's going to talk about the transfiguration we're going to study in the future. Something Jesus does, I think, that's beautiful is he gives them hope for the future. Did you know that if you are living a significant life, you have hope for the future? You can look forward to tasting the kingdom of God when you see Jesus face to face. I want everyone to close your eyes just for a second. This is not the invitation. But I just want you to visualize this with me. You are at a funeral. And the usher brings you down to the front. And you're sitting on the second pew. And all of a sudden, you realize that you're at a memorial service, but you don't know whose memorial service it is. So as you get ready to go to pay your final respects, you realize it's you in the coffin. And you're shocked because you're in the coffin, but you're also looking at yourself. So you go back and sit down in your chair, and three of your family members get up, and they're getting ready to say something about you. What do you hear them saying? What are they saying about your life? Okay, you can open your eyes now. Hopefully that wasn't scary for anyone, but the truth is we're all going to die. And we have to think about it. When we reach the end of our life, what will people say about us? I read through a sociologist, Dr. Campolo, did a study, and they interviewed people who were 95 years old and older. 50 people who are 95 and older. And this, this survey really interested me. They, they asked this question, if you could redo your life being 95 years old or older, if you could go back and do it again, what would you do differently? And there was a lot of different answers. And I want you to write these down. These are the top three. These 95-year-old and older people said they would do three things. Number one, reflect more. Reflect more. Number two, risk more. Risk more. And number three... Do more things that would live on after they are dead. Do more things that would live on after they're dead. So the sociologists went on to say, you know, reflect more. What did they mean by that? And ultimately they meant that they would stop, think, and consider with intensity the things that are important. Did you take time to enjoy your kids when they were growing up? Now, if you could, would you go back to the days of the terrible twos because your kids are growing up? Did you enjoy your spouse as you should have? They said they would take time to reflect and just enjoy the blessings instead of looking for what's next. Because when you're 95, there's not a, not a lot of what's next. You're thinking of what's behind you. So they would reflect more. Number two, this kind of shocked me. They said they would risk more. They didn't necessarily regret the things that happened in their life, but they regret the things they didn't do, the risks they didn't take. The jobs that they stayed in that they wish they would have taken a risk, but they didn't. 
the relationships they didn't invest in. And that kind of shocked me. A 95-year-old would say, I would risk more. I wouldn't have played it safe. And finally, they said that they would do things that would live on after they're gone, after they go on to be with the Lord. So I want you to think about that. The sociologists said they didn't mean huge, significant things. They meant they would add value to people's lives. They would add value and meaning. I was reading a pastor. He made this quote. I want to read it to you. He says, when you were born, you cried, but everyone else was happy. When you were born, you cried and everyone else was happy. When you die, is everyone else going to cry while you're the only one who's happy? And he said, how you answer that will determine whether you live for title or for testimony. If you live just for yourself, there may not be as many people crying at your funeral as you thought. But if you live for God, if you live for others, everyone will be crying while you're rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. Amen. So today we talked about a significant life. Jesus said the secret to living is first dying to yourself. You've got to die to that which is killing you in the terms of lack of meaning for, for God's kingdom. We talked about we've got a desire to follow Jesus above all else. We've got to die to self to follow the Savior. We've got to dare to live for a bigger purpose. Not my story, but His story. We've got to delight in Jesus more than the applause of man. And we've got to dream with hope about the future. What is it going to be like for us to taste the kingdom when we're with the king? The sermon in a sentence, just to summarize this in one sentence, is this. A significant life is one that is fully given to follow Jesus. One thing I want to close with this is, this is not how to get saved. Jesus is talking to his disciples who have been following him for three years. So if you're hearing this message and it feels a little heavy, keep in mind Jesus invested three years before he asked his disciples to do this. So some of you may be at the beginning of your Christian walk and this is like, wow, this is die to self, take up my cross. We'll start where you're at and make a step towards Christ. For those of you who have been following Christ for many years, this should be just a reminder that if you want to live, the only life is the life given to live for Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, I know this message was hard and challenging, at least for me. It's hard to live for Christ and to deny self in a selfie world. So, Lord, forgive us where we put self first. Forgive us where it's been about us and not about you. God, we repent and we're sorry. And God, we talked about the cross, how the cross represents the things that you call us to die to. It doesn't eliminate physical suffering, but the bigger picture, it's dying to the things that keep us from God. Dying to the things that prevent us from serving others. The cross represents redemption that Jesus brought about. So as we take up the cross, we take up his redemption that he gave us as a free gift. And as we follow him, we walk in grace, not by works, but by grace. As the believers pray, if, there one, if there's one here today that you've never made the decision to follow Jesus, we give this opportunity every week, the gospel every Sunday, right where we're sitting. If you're willing to follow Jesus, just say a prayer like this, Jesus I realize I've been living for self. I realize that I've fallen short of your glory. But Jesus, I've been told today that you died on the cross for my sins. You were buried and you rose the third day. 
And Jesus, I'm willing to believe what you did on the cross. And I want to follow you. And Jesus, I'm willing to repent of my sins. Please forgive me. I'm making this step of faith to give you my life and to make you my Lord and my Savior. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, we want to welcome you to the family. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, Amen. This time the ushers are going to come forward. I'm going to ask Miss Anna to come on up. We're going to have her hymn of response as offerings pass. I'm going to be at the front. Adam's going to be at the back. And we're going to open up this as Miss Anna sings this song in just a moment. We're going to open up this time to pray. Some of you may be bearing a cross that's so heavy. It may seem like, God, why are you allowing this to happen in my life? And you hear the voice of God saying, pick up your cross, follow me. Some of you, there's things that you're dying to yourself, and it's hard. Crucifixion is no easy process. But you know what? God will give you the grace. Some of you may need to come forward and pray for a family member that's struggling, that's suffering, whatever the case may be. I'm going to pray a blessing over the offering. And I want to encourage you guys to remember Brother Bob Taylor. He's in the back. His mother just passed away this week, and he's, he's suffering right now, going through a lot. So if you guys would, as we pray, uh, lift your hand towards Brother Bob and pray for him. Let's pray together. Father, first of all, we want to thank you for your goodness. And God, our hearts go out to Bob Taylor. Um, it's never easy to lose a loved one, especially a mother. So God, as he's suffering and grieving, we pray that you would give him peace. And that this church would be like a mother to him and a father to him. And this church would be like a brother and a sister. This church would be the family of God to rally around him, Father. Father, we give our tithes and offerings to you. We pray that you would use it to expand your kingdom and to do what only you can do. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.